church family my name is Kate and today our scripture reading is from book of Matthew chapter 9 verse 1 to verse 17 if you are using using the Bible on pill it's page 1384 Jesus stepped into a boat crossed over and came to his own town some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciple came and asked him, How is that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be take, bridegroom will take from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunken clothes on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wine skins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out, and the wine skins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Thanks, Kate. I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open there, and we are going to pray and ask that God might help us to hear his word. Please bow your heads and we'll pray. Oh, Father in heaven, it is a wonder, it is a joy to meet your son, the Lord Jesus, in his word. And so, Father, today as we hear of Jesus, we ask and pray that we might respond to him as the king who deserves our repentance and our faith. Father, we ask this in his name. Amen. A few years back, I, I read a story about Bill Gates and a trip that he made to Australia. Uh, you know who Bill Gates is? I hope I'm not completely dated uh, now. Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft inventor of Windows and pretty much all the software I think that we use from day to day. Uh, the story goes that he was on this trip down to Sydney, he stopped into a shop near Circular Quay, he was going to buy some jewellery as a gift and when he went up to pay for it, it was at that moment that the computer system had a little meltdown. 
Uh, the staff didn't know who he was, and so he offers to help, and they say, no, look, it's fine. Uh, we know what we're doing. And so they're, they're there trying to work it out. They're getting increasingly flustered until he insisted that they let him help them. And so he leans over, apparently, and with a few key presses, fixes the computer. Uh, they thanked him, and they turned to him and apparently said, wow, you know a bit about computers. Uh, he purchased the jewellery and left the store. Others had to tell them later who he actually was. When someone has the authority to speak on a topic, it is good to listen to what they have to say, isn't it? Uh, we've seen how Matthew is writing this gospel so that we know who Jesus is. Jesus is king. He's Lord. He's the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And because that's who he is, he is worth listening to when he speaks. Um, actually, interestingly today, we're looking at a, a passage which has a group of people who don't want to listen. There are three moments in this story where Jesus comes into conflict with religious leaders who simply don't like what Jesus has to say. They don't want to recognise his authority. And I've got to say, I actually think it's a bit tragic that they don't. Because in each one of these three stories, you see the, the good news of the kingdom, that sin is forgiven. And these guys miss it. Friends, I want you to have your Bibles open. We're going to look at these uh, three rounds as Jesus goes three rounds with the religious leaders. So round one, the story of the paralysed man. Um, it's a well-known story and we've just had it beautifully acted out, haven't we, this morning? It's been so well told. But we might forget, because we know it so well, that it, it really does have a sharp twist in the middle of the story. The story takes a sharp turn. Uh, let me set the story up for you first. Jesus has been teaching and healing and he returns for a few days to his home base. Word gets out that Jesus is back in town and every man and his dog comes to see Jesus to get healed. And you've got to say, wouldn't you? Uh, wouldn't you want to go and see Jesus? If you lived in first century Palestine, if you lived outside the benefits of modern medicine, wouldn't you want to go and see this person, Jesus, who can heal people? And so chapter 9, verse 2, there are these men who carry their paralysed friend on a mat to see Jesus. And Jesus sees them and just as we've been seeing through Matthew chapter 8 he is compassionate and he turns to this paralyzed man and he says pretty much what you'd expect uh, take heart son but but then there's a little twist we might be expecting Jesus to go on and say take heart son you're healed but he doesn't instead he says your sins are forgiven. Now, this shocked those who were listening, and as we heard, particularly the religious leaders, because immediately they're there going, who does this guy think he is? What blasphemy to claim that you have the authority to forgive sins. This guy can't go around willy-nilly forgiving people. That's something that God himself can do. I want you to see Jesus' response uh, there in verse 5. I always found this one a bit of a tricky one to kind of work out, where Jesus responds to them by saying, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. What exactly does that mean? Well, it's easier in that moment to say, 
your sins are forgiven. That's easy to say. Anyone can say that. Because when you think about it, there's um, no way of actually seeing if it's happened. You can't see if your copybook with God has been wiped clean of all, all blots. There's no way really to prove it. So Jesus goes on and he says, but just so that you know, I do have the authority to forgive sins. He turns to the paralyzed man and he says, get up and walk. Jesus heals this man and the miracle of the healing points to the higher authority, the greater authority that he has to forgive sins. Now, I've got to say, um, that is a shock. It is a twist and you can imagine people being shocked by that. But I don't think modern people like us are particularly shocked by that. Um, when I share this story with people who don't yet know Jesus, the thing that they feel shocked about is that Jesus doesn't go straight away and forgive sins. Often the response is this, really, your sins are forgiven? Um, what, what kind of person would actually say something like that? We don't really need religion at this moment. This guy needs to be healed. I want to unpack that a little bit for you. Uh, a few years ago, Emma and I were uh, running this after-school uh, kids Bible club. Uh, our kids were bringing their friends to hear about Jesus and they came along and it just kind of grew and grew. Uh, it was just utter chaos on a Friday afternoon. I just want you to imagine it. And because there were heaps of kids there, I eventually got roped in to lead a group. And I remember Toby brought his mate Riley, a nine-year-old boy. And there I am with a bunch of nine-year-old boys and we're reading through this passage. And nine-year-old Riley pretty much immediately said this, I don't like this story. Why doesn't Jesus just heal the man? Do you get what he's saying? I reckon if nine-year-old Riley can get how shocking Jesus' statement is here, we can too. But Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. It's in this moment that Jesus shows us what this man needs most. As broken as his life is, as much as he needs healing, Jesus says there's something bigger. He shows us that there's something bigger than he needs than merely being able to walk. He needs his sin forgiven. Because yes, Jesus can heal him, and this man can go and walk and run and jump and dance, all those things. But a few years down the road, the hands of time will begin to take hold of this man. It might take some time. It might take many years. He might live to a ripe old age. We're not told. But just like you and me and everyone else in this world who draws a breath, one day it stops and we face the end. And Jesus does not come to extend our lives just that little bit more, to help us get a few extra days out of life. No. Jesus comes to bring in the kingdom, where heaven and earth are made new, where this world with all its sickness and disease is finally restored and brought back into right relationship with the Creator. When we ourselves are brought back into relationship with Him. And to do that, to forgive sins, to make that all possible, we know that the king's going to have to go to the cross. But by forgiving this man, Jesus shows us what this man really deeply needs, what we all need. Not merely healing, 
but forgiveness. Now, if today this is the first time you've ever heard Jesus say something like this and you're kind of reeling a little bit in shock at what Jesus says, I just want to say firstly, welcome to Jesus. He says things like this from time to time. But I want you to hear what he says. Your greatest need this morning is to have your sins forgiven. That's the biggest need that you have. All the other things that gnaw at your heart and tell you that you need them, behind all of them, there is this deep need. You need sin forgiven. I want to say that to you this morning. But I also want to say something to those of us who've been at church for a while. I want to say something to the church family here at Ant Street. Friends, Jesus shows us clearly here humanity's greatest need. It's to have forgiveness of sins. And if that is true, that has got to profoundly shape what we do, both individually but also as a church. I reckon it would be a shame for us um, as a church if we somehow lost that amidst all the other things we were doing. We somehow got distracted from that. You see, I think it would be easy for us to become a church that is known for compassion for the sick and the poor. And we could say, look, Jesus showed concern for the, the sick, the outsiders, the weak. Isn't that what we should be on about? And yes, in part, it's wonderful that our church supports homeless ministries and we sponsor Compassion Kids, great. And yet, and yet, Jesus' miracle here points us to an even greater need. Every human soul needs the forgiveness of God. And that's what we need to be on about. Hey friends, this uh, year one of the things that we uh, as a staff team, as uh, elders, we've been discussing is how to make that a bit more of a focus. And one thing we're wanting to do is to pray for 15. You might hear us uh, put this slogan up from time to time where we're just going to be praying together as a church that 15 people might come to know Jesus. You might be sitting there and going, why 15? Why not 25? Hey, look, 15 is about 5% of the total number of people who are here at church, and we thought that would be a great thing to aim for. I want to encourage you to do that, to make that part of your prayer life, to pray for 15 people to come to know Jesus. But let me break it down for us all as individuals. I want to encourage you today just to pray for one person, just one person this year, that they might come to understand forgiveness of sin because that's the thing that they desperately need. So friends, that was round one. Come to round two in this ongoing battle between Jesus and the religious leaders and you'll see them come and ask a question. It's there in verse 11. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees, you see, have come to Jesus' disciples and they're asking this question. They're getting a little offended and a little uh, put off by Jesus. He seems to be gathering around him all the wrong kind of people. Uh, if you glance back to verse 9, you can see that he's just called a tax collector to come and follow him. I'm, I'm hoping there was a gasp there. Um, that people would have been surprised that he's gathering a tax collector. He's called a tax collector to come and follow him because they were not in the first century the right kind of people. Uh, tax collectors back in the first century, they collected taxes on behalf of the Romans, right? So first, they were considered traitors, but they were also corrupt. They extorted the Jewish people. 
And so Jesus has gone up to a treacherous scumbag and said to him, come and be one of my disciples. And it's no wonder that the Pharisees, the religious teachers, are there going, does this Jesus know what he's doing? He seems to be spending a lot of time with heinous sinners. He's actually even eating with them. Can you believe it? And hear Jesus' response in verse 12. Come to verse 12. Beautiful few, few sentences. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus has come for the sick, for the spiritually unhealthy, for the sinners. That's who he's come for. Now, we might ask ourselves, is Jesus saying here that he can really say to the Pharisees, um, uh, hey, look, Pharisees, I've not come for you guys because you're morally upright. I get that you're morally superior, but I need to focus on the bad people. Is that what Jesus is saying? I don't think it is. Because a little later in in Matthew chapter 23, he's going to say that all people, Pharisees included, have a heart problem. Uh, We display external righteousness, but actually on the inside, we're not righteous at all. We all have heart disease. We're all spiritually sick and we need the doctor. I think what Jesus is saying here is something like this. He's not come for those who think themselves righteous, but for those who know themselves to be sinners. Now, in this moment, as Jesus conflicts with the religious leaders, uh, he's hit up against something that I think we've all seen. We know that there can be a tendency for morally upright people, even religious people. I'm going to include Christians uh, here as well. For, For them to forget that we're all spiritually sick. And for, for, for us, whoever we are, to start thinking, you know what, uh, the goodness that you're seeing in my life is something that I've actually brought about. And it's easy to forget that we're all spiritually sick and we all need the medicine of the grace of God. Now, when Jesus does this, I think it's really possible for those of, uh, those of us who have not been around religious people or you've just seen them from the outside to think, excellent, This is what religious people need to hear. Religious people can be so self-righteous. I am so glad that Jesus is taking them down a peg or two. I've got to tell you, I don't think Jesus' surprising response here should be limited to people who are religious. I think self-righteousness is alive and well in the world around us. And as evidence, I provide to you some evidence, I call it social media. Have you ever seen it? Now, I think I might have shared this story with you once before, but there is a story I I read about uh, this woman a few years ago named Justine Sacco. Does anyone remember this this whole incident? Um, She was flying from New York to Cape Town via London. And as she was flying, she was on Twitter, the social media platform, and she tweeted mean jokes about the cities she was visiting. Look, they weren't nice jokes, but they weren't, I, I don't think, the worst jokes ever told. Um, Someone on Twitter saw her tweet. They decided to retweet it and express their outrage. Others jumped in. Have you ever seen this on the internet, the pylon? Others jumped in. And so by the time Justine Sacco landed in Cape Town, she was known all around the world. The number one uh, hashtag trending on Twitter at the time was, when does Justine land? 
Uh, people were jumping on to express their outrage at her poor taste and demanding public apologies and action from her employees, uh, employers. Over the next couple of days, she lost her job. She got kicked out, physically removed from the hotel she was staying at in Cape Town. In the following months, she had to leave New York City where she lived because she couldn't get a job. Uh, by the way, you can read all of her story in a book entitled So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which is a kind of survival guide if you get caught in an online outrage storm. Um, I actually think self-righteousness is alive and well, don't you? It's not the preserve of the religious, it's a profoundly human problem. And Jesus, I think, here gives us the start of a solution. He tells us that we need to recognise that we all need a doctor. We all need to be healed. We all need forgiveness. So, friends, we've seen the first two rounds of Jesus' ongoing fight with the religious leaders. And now we're going to move on to round three. Just quickly, come with me to verse 14. Some of John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus, they ask him this, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now, I think I want you to notice one really important word in that sentence, that the question that they asked. Did you notice the word often? I think you should notice that, because I think it's the hint that these guys probably think a little bit highly of themselves. They're a little self-righteous. You see, they're saying, we're really committed. We're really into being religious. Uh, we know that the Pharisees uh, fasted twice a week. Uh, they used to fast on Mondays and Thursdays. That wasn't required in the Jewish law, but they did that little bit extra. And I think it's clear that behind their love of fasting is a kind of smug self-righteousness. They want the world to see just how hard they're trying. And Jesus' disciples seem a little slack in comparison. They're not fasting enough or at all. And so the question to Jesus really is, Jesus, can you tell us why you have such low standards? That's pretty much what they're asking. And Jesus responds in verse 15. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. Jesus likens his disciples to the guests at a wedding, and obviously in this metaphor, Jesus is the bridegroom. And he says, while they've got the groom with them, it's right that they should rejoice, they should enjoy his company. I reckon there's a little note of foreboding there where it says, while he is with them. I think there's a glimpse forward to Jesus' death. But for now, when Jesus is there in their presence, it's good that they rejoice. That is right and proper. Particularly because Jesus has been declaring and showing the kingdom of God. Forgiveness of sin is possible. And so because of all of that, it is right that because the king is there with them, they should rejoice. Just like it's right when you're at a wedding reception, you rejoice and enjoy it. I hope that's your experience at least. It's not a time for being somber. And I think it would be really strange, don't you, if you went to a wedding, re a wedding reception and the father of the bride, just imagine this with me, he stands up and he says, welcome to Bob and Michelle's wedding. It's great you can be here today. Getting married is a sombre occasion, significant moment. I want to ask you all to refrain from eating. We, we'd all be sitting there going, well, really? 
You don't treat a wedding like a funeral. Weddings are for rejoicing. And so Jesus says, because he's come, his disciples shouldn't mourn. They should rejoice that the kingdom has come, that the king is here in their presence. This is good news. It's worth rejoicing about. And so in verses 16 and 17, he talks about old clothes, new patches, all that kind of stuff, old, uh, new wine into old wineskins. And I think what he's talking about there is that the old way of doing things, the old traditions that the Pharisees had, can't hold the new thing that God is doing. God in Jesus is doing a wonderful new thing. The king's here and he's turning everything upside down. And so they should rejoice. They should rejoice. Now, friends, I reckon you and I, we live in a kind of in-between moment. We live in this moment between Jesus' first coming and his return. And while we wait for Jesus' return, I think there will be times where it's right to be somber, times where it's right to repent, times where it's right to lament, times where it's right to long for the kingdom that is coming. There might even be times where it's right to fast. However, we also should have times where it's good to rejoice because the Saviour has been sent for us and we know he is the one who can heal our souls. And so we rejoice. Now, we Presbyterians are known for many things, but being joyous is not one that we're particularly famous for. I'm sorry if I'm breaking this as breaking news to you, but we're not well known for that. We're not famous for that. Actually, I think we're famous for being a little bit staid. Isn't that right? Uh, David Strain is a Scottish pastor who ministers in the United States. And he was uh, speaking about preaching in the highlands of Scotland in this small, rural, very, very serious Presbyterian church. And he remembers telling a funny story. And uh, he said it wasn't just a funny story, it was a really good, funny story. And he said, here are his words of how the congregation responded. I could tell that the congregation wanted to laugh out loud, but they didn't think they were allowed. Uh, you know, their faces started to turn red, people were sweating, they were all looking at the floor, their mouths were twitching a little bit, people were biting their lip, but they would not laugh because, you know, it wasn't the done thing. Serious Highland Presbyterians are meant to keep a straight face in church. Friends, I reckon it would be a shame for us if formalism kept us from ever expressing joy in the risen Lord Jesus. But worse, it would be a shame if we didn't rejoice because we wanted everyone to notice how righteous we are, how serious we are as Christians. So serious, we don't give ourselves to such foolish things like joy. Friends, I want to suggest to you that that is self-righteousness dressed up in piety. We know that Jesus has come, that our greatest need has been met, that sin is forgiven, and maybe from time to time that should help us rejoice. Well, friends, this morning we've seen three conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders. And I wonder if you're starting to see a pattern in Matthew's gospel from what we've seen so far over these last couple of weeks. There are people who love Jesus, who love his presence, people who realise that they need something more than really respond to Jesus. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for your son, the Lord Jesus, who has brought forgiveness of sin. Father, we ask and pray that we would know deeply that truth. Father, help us to rejoice in it and give you thanks because the king's come. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.